This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is away this week. On today's show, Margaret Marin discusses her new mystery, Takeout. Then PW Associate Editor John Marr talks about the news surrounding Milo Yiannopoulos' book, Dangerous. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. We don't have very many on the list. We do have, uh, well, one in fiction, and this is Wired by Julie Garwood. This is debuts at uh, number six on the hardcover fiction. This is in... Uh, in Garwood's 13th FBI novel, which arrives three years after the previous book, Allison Trent, a beautiful computer hacker, teams up with Liam Scott, a bad boy FBI agent, and they must collaborate in more ways than one. So uh, we've got that on um, nonfiction. Our biggest one is Molly Yiannopoulos and his self-published books under the name Dangerous Books called Dangerous. And that debuts at number two. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about that book with our associate editor, John Marr, uh, down the line. But let's go down the list a little bit further. We also have Warnings, Finding Cassandra's to Stop Catastrophes by Richard Clark. And this is uh, a book uh, about the story of the future of national security, threatening technologies in the U.S. economy, and possibly, uh, according to the publicity, the fate of civilization. So the author, Richard Clark, draws on Greek mythology, Cassandra, and um, talks about how Cassandra is predicted uh, the disasters of Katrina, Fukushima, and the Great Recession and the rise of ISIS. So uh, that's at number 19. And then following the last one we have on the bestseller list is Blindsided, the true story of one man's crusade against chemical giant DuPont for a boy with no eyes uh, by James Ferraro. And uh, we don't have a review of this but according to publicity material, they describe it as a real-life David and Goliath story, a true courtroom drama. Um, this uh, was an event that occurred in 1996 uh, in Florida, a long courtroom battle uh, after a mother uh, was doused with uh, outside with chemicals uh, believed to have caused birth defects to this boy who is born without eyes. And uh, that debuts at number 24. Again, we don't have a review of it. And again, our list of bestsellers is short of debuts. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Margaret Marin tells us about her new mystery, Takeout. We'll be right back. I'm Matthew DeBoard, author of Return to Glory, the story of Ford's revival and victory in the toughest race in the world. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Today, we've got Margaret Marin on the line. Her new book is Takeout, a Mystery. Hello, Margaret. So glad you could join us. 
Well, thank you for having me. This is your ninth and final entry in your series featuring New York City Detective Sigrid Harold, which uh, began in 1981 with uh, One Coffee With. Uh, so could you set the scene for us in this final installment? Well, um, the thing is, I will go back. Sigrid Harold is a New York Police Department homicide lieutenant who doesn't make friends easily. But she was so intrigued, a renowned artist, that he fell in love with her and eventually won through her reserve. They met in a murder investigation in that first book. Mm. He was killed in a car crash a year before this book opens. And Sigrid has inherited all of his work and all the headaches that go with it as well. A major retrospective had been planned before his death, and the planning continues with it, and that's where this book opens. And in the course of the book, um, in fact, very soon in the book, two bodies are discovered on a park bench with a couple of takeout cartons beneath the bench. And food from both cartons, it looks as if the men shared, the, the two homeless men had shared the food, so there was poison in both boxes. And the problem is first to discover who these people are because neither man had identification on him. And the second problem is to find out which one was the intended victim. So that's where this book goes. And so this one seems to be, if I'm not mistaken, a bit more of a personal journey for Sigrid. Yes, it is. Uh, as I say, she didn't make friends easily. She's sort of a prickly character. I also write a Southern character, a, a district court judge, Deborah Knott, mm. and people really took to her. She's warm and fuzzy and um, uh, has a great sense of humor, whereas Sigrid is a little more prickly, and her sense of humor is there, but it's not quite as apparent. But when I finished her last book, which was set in the 90s, I thought I had finished with her, but it turned out that I hadn't. I had left enough loose ends that I wanted to go back and tie them up. In the meantime, I had written two of the Deborah Knott books in which they had met, so I had to go back, and this book comes before those other two books. And at this point, she's never been south, and she hasn't met the other character yet. So I have to put it back into the 90s. The Twin Towers still stand. Subways still take tokens. Uh, cell phones are not ubiquitous. And you can smoke in restaurants. <laughs> I remember those days <laughs> in New York City <laughs> and, and throughout the South as well. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about Sigrid in this, uh, in this, in this most recent novel? Well, one thing is she she really is uncomfortable having inherited all this uh, artwork, which is worth probably in the millions, and she's still struggling with what to do about it. She's also still struggling with the idea of what was the artist, whose name was Oscar Nauman, what was Oscar doing out there in California when he ran the rental car off the road and was killed in a car crash. He was supposed to be attending a college art association meeting. Mm -hmm. And instead, he was out in the hills near L.A. And one of the things that we find out is that um, a lover that he had earlier, 40 years earlier, is in an insane asylum out there. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
and there's a question about whether or not he left a child, at which case Sigrid will have to decide what to do about the paintings, whether she will keep them, dispose of them herself, or share them with this um, person who says that he's Nauman's son. So there are all kinds of problems going on in the book besides the murder. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit also about a couple of the other uh, characters. One is uh, Mutone, 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 and the other is Benny Del Vecchio. Well, people accuse me of being really complicated with my relationships in my books. Um, One of my reviewers said, well, here comes Marin with her cast of 10,000 again. But I do try to keep it um, clear enough so that people don't get confused. The Del Vecchios were, um, uh, Benny Del Vecchio was a mafia don, and Sigrid discovers that there is a personal relationship to him. Her father was a police officer who was killed when she was a toddler in the line of duty, and the, the, the petty criminal who shot him was a bagman for Benny Del Vecchio. But she didn't realize it at the time when she first sees that, um, the Del Vecchio house is where one of the takeout cartons could have come from. And at first she doesn't recognize the name because she had heard that the uh, Mafia Don connected to the bagman's name was Benny Olds. And he was called Benny Olds because, of course, Del Vecchio means old in Italian. And he had a thing about Oldsmobiles. He used to hand them out as Christmas presents to his uh, gang members. So um, he was called Benny Olds, and that's the way she knew him. I think it's great how um, you, you've picked up on, on a lot of the, the Italian nicknames, how they're, they're developed. And <laughs> and how is – so so I, I know you're from North Carolina. You live there, and you've set quite a few novels in in both, obviously. Your, your, your novels set either in North Carolina or, or New York City by and large. How did you come up with your characters for the New York ones? Well, you know, you start with I, – I don't outline – And that has been a handicap in a way, but on the other hand, it leaves it open for serendipity. But, um, you know, I know we live in a multicultural society, and I know Mm -hmm. a lot of different names. And what's so lovely about being in in 2016, I mean 2017, is that you can Google different names. And... um, So I have what is called a running Bible in that every character I have ever used, I've got their names listed so that I don't double up. Uh, I didn't want to discover that I already had somebody by that name. Uh, I started doing this with my first book because I discovered that I wanted to name every woman Anne. I didn't think that would work, even if I gave them (laughs) different surnames. So this is how I come up with the characters. And I try to make sure that they they don't look like each other, that they don't have the same initials and um, the the same letters for their first names. I I, I don't want – I'm confusing my readers enough that I don't want to confuse them unnecessarily. Well, do you think you're confusing readers, readers or, or is it just adding a little bit of depth um, and complexity to the narrative? Well, the names make a difference. I can't write about a character until I get their names. Right. And sometimes 
it's a long process. I mean, it'll, it, I, I can waste an hour going through the names for your baby and, and trying to find just the right name that will work with this character. And once I have the name, then I can start fleshing out their appearance. And I like to get behind their eyes and see what they're seeing, feel what they're feeling. And that makes it real to me. So it all starts with the name. And so once you have a name, then the identity kind of, or the, the, the physical, uh, maybe characteristics or personality traits, uh, uh, start developing around the name. Well, I also have an idea of what that character's position in the story is going to be. Even though I don't outline, I have a pretty good idea of what the story's going to be. Now, I will often start a book and don't have a clue as to who the killer is. Uh, the very first book in this series, One Coffee With, about a third of the way in, the person that I had planned to be the killer dug in her little toenails and said, I'm not that kind of person. And she wasn't, as I had constructed her. Now, I could have gone back and changed her, or I could have mm-hmm. insisted that she do it anyhow. But to stay true to the story, I started looking around, and there was somebody in the background who said, I'll be the killer. And not only was he a better killer, he had a more clever motive and a better way of doing it. So I let him go. And since then, I I don't worry. I start the book. I think I know where I'm going, but if it turns out that that's not where I'm going, it doesn't bother me. One of my books, The Killer, changed five times, and I only had to change one sentence. Wow, how is that? That's uh, so. So the killer's the killer's name, or the killer in uh, in 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 the, in the novel. The identity of the killer, not his name. Once I get the name oh, set, wow. they stay. But it's just that um, better characters kept appearing who had better motives, and I just let them have their head. And I don't worry about it because it all comes right in the end. I mean, right. I know where I'm. I, I have a good idea of where I'm heading. I I may not know who the killer is, but I do have an idea of what I want to accomplish in the book. And in the book, it seems that, or in your books, you you also bring in what I I think maybe uh, details or at least interests of yours. And for instance, in this one, you you weave an opera. Uh, tell us about that. <laughs> well. Opera is such a glamorous thing, and it is. Uh, I know that it's almost a cliche how much Italians love their opera. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if. Uh, well, I had already established this character, um, Rudy. And he had told Sigrid earlier, I mean, he had met her earlier because he was a, 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 a past friend of Oscar Nauman's. So I knew that there was an opera singer living on the block. And so when I needed a suspect, why not? And that let me explore some of the uh, opera lore. And one of my readers works backstage in broad- on Broadway, and uh, he's a stage manager. And he gave me some interesting details that I thought, well, that would be good in the book. And so I sprinkled those details over. Anything that authenticates a character helps, I think. And in your process, what did you learn about opera? What was it that was something surprising you know, in your research? Well, one of the things, I didn't know that they that um, the Metropolitan, for instance, you just don't have a, a stand-in or an understudy. You have what's called covers. And 
for a major opera production, there's usually two covers, not just one. And they have to live within 15 minutes of the Met or be able to get to the Met in 15 minutes so that they can hurry over and slip into the role. And did that detail work itself in your novel? Yes, it did. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it did. It was very interesting because that was a major clue. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Sigrid herself. How has she evolved over the course of these novels? And I know you said earlier that uh, that at one point you thought that that was the end of the character, the end of the series. But then you kind of revived her. At least you realized that it wasn't. Well, the thing is, when I first started, I knew I, I like to read series books myself. So I started with the idea that this would be a series. I also started with the idea that her father was killed in the line of duty, and there is an arc that runs through those first eight books in which she learns details about her father's life and about the uh, his position in the police department vis-a-vis her own current position in the police department. I also had her start out as somebody who cared absolutely nothing about clothes. She wore beige and black and shapeless. She didn't care. She wore her hair in a bun. And over the course, and and, and she'd never been in a real um, serious relationship. She has a Southern mother and a Southern grandmother who thinks that she just isn't trying. And she feels inferior physically next to them because they're both beautiful women. But over the course of the book... When Oscar Nauman falls in love with her, she starts seeing herself as maybe a desirable woman after all. She learns a little bit about makeup, which I have a lot of fun with, because if you being a man, you wouldn't know this about how much how difficult it is to put on mascara if you've never done it before. Mm. So I have a lot of fun with that, with her learning how to use makeup. She gets her hair cut. She falls in love. And begins to accept herself more. So her progress is from intellect to emotion, whereas with the Deborah Knott series, I think her progress is from emotion to intellect. And the two have contrasted very nicely. So over the course of the books, I thought I had finished with her. But then when I was writing the Deborah Knott books, at one point... Deborah and her new husband decide to go to New York for a belated honeymoon, three-day town. And they have borrowed an apartment. And, of course, a body shows up in that apartment. And who comes to investigate but Sigrid Harold? Well, it turns out that um, Deborah knows Sigrid's grand, uh, North Carolina grandmother. So they mm. have that little bit of a connection. But it's not much of a connection. They don't really become best friends forever in that book. But having taken Deborah to New York, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to bring Sigrid to North Carolina? And so in a book called The Buzzard Table, I do just that. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. 
every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Margaret Marin, the author of Takeout. And we are talking about uh, the main character in this, uh, Secret Herald. And um, what does she represent for you, if anything, Secret, as opposed to, say, Deborah Not. Well, she's in New York, and I loved living in New York. I really did enjoy it. But, you know, there came a time when I wanted to bring my writing home to North Carolina, and so I did. But um, what does she represent to me? Just a whole different lifestyle, I think. I have friends who live in the Lower Village, which is where this murder takes place. And I was always fascinated by how... New York really is a, a collection of small towns. I mean, my friend's husband knew everybody below 14th Street, but take him above 14th Street, and he was like a tourist. Mm. And with my agent who lives on the Upper West Side, when I visit with her and we walk out together, she meets um, high school friends, the parents of some of her high school friends. I mean, it really is a collection of different villages, and that was one of the things I wanted to explore in this book, because this street where the murder takes place, there's a diner in the middle of the street, and it's sort of the focal point of that street, and everybody seems to know everybody else, which is, of course, what they do. If you've lived there for a long time, you do know who your neighbors are. You may not have them in for tea every afternoon, but you know a little bit about them, and you've heard the gossip about them. And that was one of the things that I've enjoyed exploring over the years. So we say in our Star review of your book that uh, if this is indeed Marin's final book, as she has announced, she is quitting while still in top form. And I, also, I know you also did a Q&A with us. Um, talk to us about this. Well, it's very kind of the reviews, and, and this was not the only review that said that I'm leaving in top form. The thing is, I'm just, I, I will still continue to write. I began my career with short stories, and I still love the form. In fact, the very first book in this series, One Coffee With, began as a short story, which I sent it off, and it didn't sell, and it came back, and I doubled it into a magazine novelette, and that didn't sell. So I doubled it into a book novelette and sent it off to an agent who said, you know, I like the characters, and I like the story, and I like the writing, but nobody's buying novelettes. Now, if you could just double it. So darn if I didn't double it again, and that was what sold One Coffee With. And But I didn't think I could write a whole book. So I really backed into writing a book, and the fact that I've written 30 more just totally amazes me. But I'm ready to be done with contracts. I'm ready to be done with deadlines. I just want to do a little more life in the slow lane, enjoy this part of my life. And I will continue to write short stories and the occasional essay article, but I really don't want to do any more contracts and no more deadlines and Probably not that length again. So what pleasure do you derive from writing? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, that's a hard question to answer because writing's what I do. I mean, it's like what you do. Uh, what pleasure do you derive from it? I love it when a sentence works out perfectly or when something... Um, oh, for instance, in my Deborah Knott series... I needed a character, and I needed that character to be related to Deborah. 
So I went looking at her family tree, which I had drawn up shortly after I first conceived the character. Now I'm about eight or nine books into the series, and I discovered that there's a niece missing from the the family tree. And that was the character that I needed. Now, how could I have known that eight or nine books earlier? But there it is. And it absolutely delighted me when I found it. And and sometimes you'll get a felicitous turn of phrase, and you think, boy, where did that come from? But I'm using it. And those are the pleasures. And, of course, the finished book itself. Although, like most writers, as soon as I finish a book, I absolutely hate it and don't like it again for another six or eight months mm-hmm. when you can get a little perspective on it. So with the Deborah Knott, and you finished that series with Long Upon the Land, uh, you say there were several, uh, resolved several outstanding questions about the characters. Um, did you feel that that was a good time to end with that series as well? Yes, I did. I felt like I had said just about everything that needed to be seen, and that if I continued to write, which I could, I mean, I could burble on about the South and North Carolina and uh, legal cases. She's a judge, so interesting cases turn up in her courtroom all the time. I could keep doing that, but it would just be doing the same thing over and over, and I don't know that I had anything new to say, and and I didn't want to just stay too long at the dance, you know? Uh, yeah, I completely get it. Um, and, and as we talk, your, your novels are set both in New York and North Carolina. Um, how does the region dictate the narrative? I, I'm, it must in ways for you and the characters. Oh, yeah, very definitely. Uh, with the Sigrid Herald books, I think up a murder and a plot and a vague outline of who did it and how and why and how she's going to discover uh, in her investigation who the killer is. With the Deborah Knott books, I send her usually somewhere in the state to hold court, and then I just look to see what the problems are for that area or what's interesting about that area. Um, I read the local newspapers. I used to actually subscribe to the local newspapers, but with the Internet, you can read those papers online, and especially the letters to the editor. If you want to know what the conflicts are, Read the letters to the editor of a local newspaper because that is where people will really write in and let you know what's on their mind. And that gives me a handle on something. Then I go there and I talk with some of the people and one person will lead me to another person until I have enough background material that um, I can get a plot out of it. We're talking about news and, and how you're getting information or, or details from, from articles, whichever region. Now, North Carolina has been in the news quite a bit for various controversial issues. Oh, tell me about it. And, I, and has that, would that have been something that would have made its way into your novels? Or is that something oh, yes. that you think about in, in your own writing or will think about as you continue to write shorter pieces? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I have been very disheartened with the way North Carolina's gone in the last few years. Very disheartened. And I'm not going to say, but, you know, that might well be one of the reasons that I'm just not enthusiastic about writing about it anymore. I was so proud of the progressive stance that North Carolina had for so many years with its colleges, with the research triangle, with its progressive liberal attitudes. But no more. No more. 
I mean, this idea of voter suppression, of um, trying to resegregate the schools by economics, if not by race, but it winds up being by race because it is by economics. And the voter registration and about the redistricting of the voters, it's just, it's been very disheartening. And surprising. Uh, I mean, I, as you said, yes. as uh, the progress that North Carolina has made, not just as a state in the South, but as a state, um, to see it's going back a little bit. More than a little bit. Yeah. But I know that I'm writing entertainment. I am not writing from a soapbox. And anytime I start getting on a soapbox, uh, I will have readers write me and say, well, you know, they like the character, but they really don't want to hear my preaching and my politics. And, you know, it's hard to write about a character who is a political character, which Deborah not is. She has to run for judge. So she is political and she has opinions. She's a very opinionated woman. And if I give way to her opinions too much, I know that it borders on preaching. Sure. And which, as you said, has influenced you, maybe plays a part in why um, you're, why you're hesitant to write, to stop writing um, right. under contract. Yeah. Now, you were named the NWA Grandmaster. What did that mean for you? Oh, it was a great, great honor. That is the recognition by your peers that they consider that what you've done is valuable. When they told me that I was going to be given the award, I just, you know, it just took the breath out of me. It really did. And I felt so honored. And it was the same when uh, they told me that I was going to be inducted into the North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame. It was the same thing. It's just this recognition by your peers. You're going along and doing the best work that you can. And it means so much when your peers say, yeah, yeah, this is worth recognizing. Well, um, I wish you continued success in your own writing, uh, whatever you're doing, the uh, uh, shorter fiction. Um, and uh, it's been nice talking with you. Mark, thank you so much. It's been fun for me, too. We've been talking with Margaret Marin. You can find her new mystery takeout in stores right now. Margaret, thanks so much. Take care, Mark. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Associate Editor John Marr talks about the news surrounding Milo Yiannopoulos' book, Dangerous. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Rose Fox is away this week. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Associate Editor John Marr will talk about the news surrounding Milo Yiannopoulos and his new book, Dangerous, which uh, debuted on our bestseller list this week. Hello, John. Hello, Mark. How are you? Good, good. So this is big news. This was a book that was going to be published by a major house, was then canceled, and Milo Yiannopoulos uh, decided to self-publish, and it's on the bestseller list. So what's going on with it? <laughs> uh, I think the, the more appropriate question is actually what isn't going on with it. Uh, this book has been... This book has been a huge story in the publishing industry for, at this point, more than seven months. Um, so in, in late December of 2016, 
Simon and Schuster announced uh, that, or well, really, it was reported by, I believe, the Hollywood Reporter got the scoop. I'm not positive on that, uh, but it was reported that Miley Yiannopoulos, who, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, is a a conservative former journalist and pundit. Um, he wrote for Breitbart Tech. He is often called a provocateur uh, due to uh, the what many would term as deliberately offensive opinions that he uh, has and spouts on about on the internet and in his columns and in interviews. Um, it was announced that he had gotten a $250,000 advance from Simon & Schuster, which is one of the big five publishing companies, uh, to write uh, a book, then untitled, if I remember correctly, but eventually titled Dangerous, uh, which was going to release, I believe, in March. Now, there was a whole gigantic lash, uh, backlash against this from Simon & Schuster authors, from Simon & Schuster children's authors in particular, from the publishing world at large, from... Uh, leftist Twitter, from political Twitter, from pretty much anyone you can imagine who uh, has, you know, a a political stance and wanted to uh, get involved with it. It kind of, it blew up. And, and in fact, uh, if I remember correctly, and I can actually, uh, I can actually double check this as we speak, um, we've written one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine stories. We'd written nine stories as of the twentieth of February alone, following this uh following this whole thing. Uh then a tenth, rounding them up on the twenty-third, then at least another in June, and then uh last week, with the big news, uh we we published a relatively in-depth report on this. Um because on Thursday, last Thursday, uh, he had a book launch party in New York following the book's release on July 4th. Um, and the day after, he announced a $10 million lawsuit against Simon & Schuster for what he alleges is breach of contract. Um, so that was kind of a fun thing to report. Uh, and by fun, I mean nuts. Um, because I ended up going to his launch party, which was a far cry from a typical publishing launch party, to say the least. Um, well, t tell us, tell us about that launch party. I mean, uh, first of all, launch parties, you have, uh, media people, you have, uh, the, the, uh, uh, friends of the author, uh, people, you know, the publisher who's there, you have people that they may invite from the New York Times or the sure. journal or elsewhere. What was, uh, what was Milo's, uh, uh party like well uh typically i mean you 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 got that part right mark i mean i think you know for for context typically a book launch party involves going to um some sort of event space or bar or restaurant uh it involves hors d'oeuvres it involves typically an open bar for at least a couple of hours it involves um the publisher coming and saying some very nice words about the book and often the author saying some very nice words about the publisher and occasionally a very brief reading and then everybody goes off and continues to chat with each other and sometimes get their book signed um now it's not that that didn't happen at the Milo book party but it was definitely different from the way in which it would happen at a regular party. Um, so Milo rented out 
uh, or Milo Inc. Let us say uh, his his uh, his company, which he I believe created following um, the Simon Schuster file, although I'm not clear on that. Uh, but Milo Inc. published the book, and and he through Milo Inc. held this party um, at a venue in Lower Manhattan. On the first floor, there was a fake pile of burning copies of the book Dangerous. Not actually burning. They were just made to look like they were burning. There was a smoke machine to make it look like there was smoke coming from them. And a bunch of props um, for uh, a fake liberal protest uh, held by so-called social justice warriors um, with signs that were typical of the Women's March, signs that are uh, typical of uh, LGBTQ protests, signs that are typical of protests against um, the uh, travel ban, against uh, the travel ban set against six to seven Muslim countries, predominantly Muslim countries. Uh, so it was, it was clearly deliberately made to have Milo's supporters play the role of those who, in Milo's perspective, attempted to silence him. Then we went upstairs after after a a bit of a rocky start to the party. It took a while for them to open the top floor, uh, but once they opened the top floor, which is where the party was predominantly held, there was an op- open bar. Um, there were a number of screens running. For example, on one screen there was uh, footage of uh, of Vladimir Putin. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, Russian propaganda of Putin riding shirtless on a horse and stuff like that. On another, there were just rotating images of his face. And there were... There's really no way for me to say this without being slightly offensive to people, which is... Obviously, this is not my intention, but this is just me as a reporter. Uh, there was there was a Hillary Clinton lookalike dressed in an orange prison jumpsuit uh, sitting in a dunk tank that looked like a jail. There were three little people uh, dressed in yarmulkes and Ben Shapiro name tags. Ben Shapiro is a, um, I believe he's a conservative Jewish journalist who, uh, it's either the Daily Caller or the Daily Wire, I don't remember. Uh, the one that isn't Tucker Carlson's, uh, who I suppose Yiannopoulos has some sort of beef with um there were uh women dressed in burqas and hijabs who stripped down into uh lingerie and strip teased at the party there were i mean you're getting the gist here in fact they actually cleared with the new york city police department uh the use of an actual firearm obviously not firing anything there was like an actual 38 on hand for a performance that Milo and his his actors did in order to introduce him on stage when he finally went on stage to talk about uh, how much he hated Simon and Schuster and how excited he was to launch this book. And this definitely sounds pretty provocative, uh, as you said, as a as, as a provocateur that he is. Um, so, what is now going on with the lawsuit? Is that something that is real? Is it substantial, or is this a way to drum up more publicity? Um, it's definitely a way to drum up more publicity. Uh, whether or not it's substantial, I will leave to the legal experts. Uh, I can I can tell you this from my conversations uh, with um, with fellow PW reporters who have uh, access to legal. Uh, consultants and legal um you know uh sources there there are some bits and pieces of the way he frames this that are possibly legitimate but it is very unlikely to go to trial uh and he's certainly not going to well again 
nothing is certain in this world. Um, but he is very, very unlikely to receive the $10 million he's demanding from Simon and Schuster. When Simon and Schuster cut the deal from when they decided to terminate the deal, um, they said that it was because the manuscript was unfit for publication. It came just after news broke of a conversation Yiannopoulos had, I believe in 2016, um, that seemed to imply that he endorsed or at least, at least did not condemn pedophilic relationships. Uh, and th- that is, I'm not going to weigh in too much on that because there's a million places online where you can read about whether or not that's fair or accurate. But regardless, after that news broke, Simon and Schuster terminated for what they called, um, what the, they said that the manuscript was unfit for publication. Now, I spoke with Milo at his party and we spoke for about eight minutes. Uh, he, he told me that they, uh, that he kept an $80,000 advance from them the part of the advance that they said he could keep of the 250,000 he was going to receive. Um, and they gave him back the rights to the book. Um, so there is an argument that, uh, in fact, he agreed with the termination clause because he accepted the payment. And so, uh, all bets are off. That said, it's not exactly that clear cut, uh, from what I can tell, uh, and again, I have a very limited legal background, so uh, for you know, please take this with all the grains of every type of salt. Um, but there, there is a possibility that uh, he's got enough of a case to at least get it considered by a court. At which point, the vast likelihood uh, is that they'll settle. Um, I mean, Simon and Schuster. S- is not going to pay him $10 million. I highly doubt that they will pay him $10 million. And I'm sure they will fight him one way or another. Uh, again, this is all speculation, but I- I'm going to bet that they will settle out of court. Um, and that's if it gets past a court. But again, I would, I would say, uh, wait for our story in which our legal experts give you a bit more of an idea on how that'll work. So the story will be coming out in the coming week or so. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, last question or last point. Uh, he had boasted that sales were about 100,000 out the gate. Uh, according to NPD BookScan, which is the BookScan numbers, the numbers we use, it was uh, enough to put him on the bestseller list, but far below the 100,000 he had claimed. Well, that's a little complicated, too. Um, and I'll try to be quick about that. Uh, the, the gist here is... It, it, um, they're claiming that a hundred thousand copies have been bought wholesale, and that may very well be true. There's no uh, reason why. There's no reason not to necessarily believe that they printed a hundred thousand copies, and that wholesalers wanted those hundred thousand copies. Um, a source familiar with Amazon. Uh, said that the 100,000 copies that his uh, p- one of his publicists told us last week Amazon bought, they said that was far from the truth. Uh, but again, this is something where so many people have so many different claims, and it's a self-published book, and we don't have access to the publisher. I mean, there's inevitably going to be some bits that fall through the cracks, right? Uh, that said, sure, it's theoretically possible that wholesalers have bought 100,000 copies, but from my understanding... Um, that doesn't mean that those copies have sold. That means that the wholesalers have the copies in case consumer buyers 
buy them. But if consumer buyers don't buy all those 100,000 copies, you can bet your buttons that they're going to send them back to Milo and ask for a and ask for a refund. Uh, again, I I'm a little less clear on how all of the the technical aspects work and, and this is where our uh, our currently out of office editorial director would come very much in handy. Well, you know, this is and I'm sure as you said we've written uh we've done about 9 pieces on this and I'm sure that we're going to have a couple more to follow up so it's something that I'm sure we're going to be talking with you about later on or at least uh those out there can uh go right to the site uh uh and uh read the articles for yourself. So, John, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my my pleasure, Mark. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 